I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. We're going to continue our march through history on the road to the 4th of July holiday. As we look back, of course, uh, many of America's founding fathers were fathers um, of more than just uh, a new nation. They were actually dads. They were literal fathers of sons and daughters. And there is just a fascinating new BYU research uh, piece that was just published in the American of, uh, American Journal of Political Science. And it has some just amazing suggestions about the impact that being a father with sons or daughters or both uh, the impact that it had when it came to drafting the Constitution. And uh, when I saw that the headline, of that, I thought, oh, this is going to be amazing. And then I looked at who was uh, in charge of this research, and I said it's going to be way past amazing. Uh, Jeremy Pope, who is a professor of political science at BYU, he's the co-director of the Center for the Study of Elections and Democracy at BYU, and he is one of the great thinkers, researchers, pollsters, uh, and I think one of the great uh, unknown treasures down there at BYU. And he was in charge of this whole study, and he joins us live now on the line. Jeremy, thanks for sharing your role into the 4th of July weekend with us. Well, thanks for having me, Boyd. I appreciate it. Well, let's let's dive into this. So your piece suggests and your research shows that uh, there was a uh, an impact of those founding fathers who actually were fathers. Tell us about it. Well, it, it came about because um, I teach this class on the Constitutional Convention every couple of years, and I always have the undergrads do projects. And I had looked at the, the idea of whether or not the kids, the, the gender of the children, boys or girls, had affected anything about what we knew about voting patterns in the convention before. But I hadn't done as much homework as I should have, and I had this amazing undergraduate. And so I should say I'm not really the sole author uh, on this. I did this with a fellow named Soren Schmidt, who uh, is a BYU graduate, graduate, just graduated from Yale Law School and is poised to take over the legal world. But he came to me and he showed me, you know, the data set that I had originally been using sort of listed all of their children at their death. And we looked at, well, what was, what was their life like at the moment the Constitutional mm-hmm. Convention came about? And we realized there were actually some interesting patterns in this data set of 16 votes where we can can sort of make a decent guess or know how the delegates to the Constitutional Convention voted on things. And there was this really interesting pattern that suggested that fathers of sons were much more interested in having a large 
decentralized new government, and fathers of daughters were less interested in that. They were happy with the states as they were, and they were not interested in a big reform. And so we worked on that paper together. We just got it published. Uh, and that's the basic idea of the paper, that the gender of your kids actually made some difference in how you thought about government at the Constitutional Convention. Wow. I, I think that's just fascinating. So, uh, again, if you look at uh, the history of it, 1787, of course, the concerns about fathers for their daughters uh, was was very different probably than what uh, many fathers of daughters are looking at today. Uh, and yeah. the same with sons in terms of uh, what they would need to do in 1787. Uh, so how did that play out? Well, I, I don't want to imply that fathers of daughters in the past, they didn't love their daughters, but they probably thought about them in different ways. Uh, I'm the dad of three daughters now, and I think about my daughter's future in, in a very different way. I think about their careers. I think about what their life will be like. In that time period, you would not have thought about your daughter's careers, mm-hmm. except in the sense that they might have been a homemaker or perhaps run some sort of farm or, or in some southern cases, your plantation. So you thought about your, your daughter as much as you may have loved her in a different way than you did a son, especially second sons, that you needed to find a career for, right? They're not going to inherit the family estate, uh, or certainly they're not going to inherit it in the same expectation. It's more likely they're going to go off and they're going to join the military, become a lawyer, perhaps own a business of some sort. Government can be a great career uh, for them. But um, they're probably not going to inherit the estate. So there is this kind of small incentive that the father of a son has to create more offices, like a national judiciary, uh, ambassadors, customs collection houses, all sorts of things that we probably don't think about, but were important government offices in the 1700s and 1800s. And, And it had an effect, I think, on how the national government looked. I don't think the Constitution was only affected by that, but but I think it did have an effect. Yeah, certainly. And and so let's just dive into that real quick. Just give me uh, give me one example from each of those. Uh, was there a particular founding father that kind of stood out uh, with sons that kind of led towards that stronger national government? Was there one of those founders in that convention uh, that had daughters that uh, was focusing more on a, a less centralized national government? Well... It, certainly, there was a there was one person, Robert Yates from New York. He's not as famous. There's no musical about him. He's, <laughs> he's probably not as interesting as Alexander Hamilton, but he's also a New York delegate, so he knew Hamilton. Yates didn't have very many daughters. He definitely had more sons. Uh, or I'm sorry, he had more daughters. I, I'm sorry, I got that exactly backwards. He had mostly daughters. He didn't have sons. And Yates thought the national government should not even exist. Oh wow. He was fine with the Articles of Confederation. He thought that that would be perfectly. All right. As opposed to delegates, uh, frankly, you could use Hamilton as kind of an opposite mm. case, somebody who had more sons at that time period. Hamilton was frankly obsessed with a stronger national government. I doubt that sons were the only consideration, but you can look at people like, you know, Pierce from Georgia or others. It, but, you know, in all honesty, it's a statistical analysis. It, yeah. It's not the case that any of the delegates said, I want a place for my <laughs> son. Boy, I really think I'd like to, you know, you know, put them in office in the future. No one was quite that stupid, and, and maybe it wasn't even a conscious decision, right? Like, they're not necessarily, you know, thinking, boy, I've got to get a place for that Philip kid because who knows what kind of uh, you know, <laughs> life he'll have if we don't right. make this national government. He's not like that. But I, I do think that it played a small, unconscious role. And, of course, it is also true that the sons of these men who were at the Constitutional Convention, they do make up a much greater proportion of the elite uh, over the next, say, 20 to 30 to 40 years mm-hmm. than – just other wealthy uh, individual Americans do because they're passing on political talents and political connections 
to their kids and, and frankly, again, mostly their sons, not yeah. their daughters. Right. That's just not how that time period works. Yeah. And I just think it's such a fascinating thing to to think through, because if if we play it out, sometimes we look at our elected officials and we think, well, why in the world are they doing that? Uh, and I, I, I know we think that a lot at my house, uh, but uh, but it's interesting, and it's I think it's important for us to to look at those family dynamics, to look at some of the other influences. You look at someone like a President Biden, who clearly was impacted uh, by the the death of his son, uh, yeah. and and so you can see those kinds of things. But we often don't focus on that. Uh, I also think it's interesting to just look at the impact of children and family on presidents. We know with President Lincoln, uh, again, loss of a son was a, a significant portion mm-hmm. of, of his life and something that shaped his decision-making and his presidency. And uh, so I, I love this whole idea of going in and peeling peeling the layers back a little bit, both in terms of understanding what could have been impacting it, but I think it's a good model and a good message for all of us to rather than just uh, throw somebody under the bus uh, or give somebody a musical uh, <laughs> to to peel those layers back a little bit and assess uh, some of those things. So, uh, any other interesting takeaways, uh, Jeremy? Just as we kind of round out today. Well, well, I just back up what you said a second ago. That I don't think political scientists or just every everyday people who are interested in politics we don't put enough emphasis on your family relationships and how those affect uh, politics. Um, as you know, because you've given us some help on another project that I have called the American Family Survey, I think family makes an enormous difference yeah. in what you think about policy and how you react to the political world around you, because we're all human. Those influences make a difference. The influence is very different in 1787 than it is yeah. today. But that doesn't mean it's not important, and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about how family works across a whole host of, of situations. So I, I do hope political science will start paying more attention to our family relationships and how they affect political life, because I think it's pretty important. Yeah, fantastic. Great stuff, as always. I uh, really appreciate Jeremy Pope, again, from BYU, a political science professor, also the co-director of the Center for the Study of Elections and Democracy at BYU. Great piece, great research, as always. Uh, Jeremy, we need to have you back a little more often uh, to break down some of this stuff for us. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right, uh, we're going to go ahead and step aside for a quick commercial break. That's some great stuff in there. we got to think through that a little bit more. We'll unpack that a little more as we go through the hour number two. Next up on the program, rural Utah businesses are preparing for one of the busiest weekends of the year. How can we help grow this important economic sector even when the holiday weekend is over? Aaron Starks is going to join us from World Trade Center Utah to discuss coming up next. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.